Hello, good evening, good day to everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. I hope you're all doing very well. And let me see who all is there today with us. I can see Akanksha, Dungar Singh Johan, Vatsal, Abhinash, Avantika, H8X, Praful, Manish, Vijay, Bhushan, Anurag, Anup, uh, Ideas Hub, Animish, Srihari, Arjun, Abhishek, Kunal, Great Sir is back, Avinash, uh, Lage Raho Online, Om Naik, GK, Bluebird, Asmenor, Harbinger, Varun Sharma, Vatsal, Avantika, Bibek, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. I hope you're doing well. And before we begin, please let me know if there is any issue with the image quality. We had a couple of live streams in which the image wasn't very good. So that was unfortunate. I hope that doesn't happen again. Uh, so if there is any problem, please let me know. I will keep an eye on the on the chat messages. So just let me know if the image is fine or if there is any problem with the image. All right. So I think there are no issues. That's what people are saying. No problem. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great. So with that, let's get into the questions. I have taken a bunch of questions and let's see how many I can answer today. Question one is from Yuvraj Singh. A 5,000-year-old jewelry factory has been found in Rakigari. What's my reaction to this? My reaction is, yay, great, fantastic. We found a jewelry factory. The thing is this, Rakhivgari is the most likely the largest known uh, Saraswati Sindhu civilization era site, archaeological site that we know of. And I think we have uh, excavated or explored only like 2 or 3% of it. So the majority of this site is still underground and we still uh, don't know much about it. So as we explore and excavate this site further, we will find... Uh, more such interesting artifacts emerging from it. So we discovered a jewelry factory. There are so many other sites. There are thousands of unexplored, unexcavated archaeological sites along in this entire region. So as we explore and excavate more of them, we'll find lots of other interesting things. Jewelry factories and uh, I don't know, we, we will be able to uncover the lifestyle of our ancestors. What sort of life, lives did they live and so on. Right now, we know very little about them. So this jewelry factory, they have found, they found, uh, I think, gold ornaments and the entire uh, tools for making these uh, various ornaments and things. That's what I heard. I haven't uh, read the news in detail, but it's not surprising. And I'm very happy to see this. So I hope the excavation, the archaeological work goes on. It carries on and we we explore many more sites apart from Rakigari. So it needs to go on and it's a very good and welcome development. Samarth says, why did India ban wheat exports? Is it because of the heat wave or the cyclones that we witnessed before? About a week ago, the government said we were ready to feed the world. So what's happening? Is it a loss for us? G7 countries have started to criticize us for banning the wheat exports. Why do they have a problem on about this when they should understand that India has to take care of its own people first? Okay, let's first go into why this was done. So, uh, it has nothing, nothing to do with cyclones as far as I understand. Heat wave, yes, there's been, there's been a heat wave in recent days and weeks in uh, northern India and in other parts of India as well. So, that has affected the, the wheat crops. And uh, so, that's one factor. The larger factor is that uh, 
the past two, two and a half years, ever since 2020, we went through this terrible, unfortunate pandemic in which the entire country was under lockdown for a long period of time for, for on various occasions. And because of that, the government of India was forced to dip into its uh, food grains reserves. And I think it dispersed free food grains, including wheat, to about 800 million people because people were jobless, people were not working anymore. And that's how the nation was able to tide over this, this terrible crisis. So the food grain reserves have gone down. And uh, because of this uh, situation in Ukraine, uh, Ukraine is one of the major wheat exporters in the world. Now the Ukrainian uh, wheat exports are not happening because of the war which, which is going on there. The ports are blockaded and so on. And therefore, uh, wheat prices and other food grain prices are rising. Inflation is rising worldwide. India is also de dealing with uh, somewhat increasing inflation. And if we keep on exporting our food grains, then the prices will go uh, will rise even further. I think the prices have risen to record levels when it comes to uh, when it comes to wheat. So to prevent this from happening, the government of India has temporarily. This is a temporary ban. This is this is a temporary ban. They have we have temporarily uh, banned the export of wheat. So this is not a complete blanket ban. Uh, wheat exports will be still allowed on a case-by-case -case basis. There will be some nations that have desperate shortages of wheat and all that. So in case there are situations like that in certain places, then we will allow exports of wheat on a humanitarian basis to such countries where there is a crisis situation. So that is something we're going to do, but we are not going to allow the unabated uh, full-scale export of wheat. I think India is, is, India is, I think, the second largest producer of wheat in the world and the sixth or seventh largest exporter of wheat. So right now, India has to look out for its own people first. India has to ensure that the inflation doesn't rise too much. India has to ensure that the wheat prices and food grain prices don't rise too high because that's going to uh, impose lots of hardships on, on people, on, on, on the population of India. We don't want that to happen. So temporarily, we have banned the export of wheat. Eventually, in the future, when things are better as judged by the government of India. We may allow the export of wheat to resume. Right now, it is going to be allowed on a case-by-case -case basis, only when in places in cases where certain countries have a genuine crisis kind of situation. So that is the reason why India has temporarily banned the wheat exports. Now, you are right. Uh, several G7 countries uh, are criticizing India for banning wheat exports. India has a responsibility to the G7 or whatever. India owes nobody anything. India has a responsibility to its own citizens. India's, India's interest comes first. The national interest come for, comes first, as it, it has always been across the world. When the coronavirus crisis was going on. The Americans stopped exporting the vaccine raw materials to India. They said America comes first. That's what the Biden administration did. They stopped exporting uh, vaccine raw materials to India because they said that America must come first. So, hey, that's what's happening. Enjoy it. India's national interest will come first. The people of India will always come first. Everything else comes later. That's how it goes. And that's how the world has always rolled and that's how we are, we are doing that, that's how that's what we are doing we are putting our own interest first uh yesterday i released this uh video about the jayashankar doctrine one of the tenets of the jayashankar doctrine is that our interests come first your interests come later we are going to engage with the world on on the basis of shared interests 
and uh, mutual respect. So when people are criticizing India, why there is no respect. So if you don't want to respect us, you don't expect anything from us. That's how it goes. So that's just how it's going to be. People can criticize, people can crib, people can cry and moan. They can keep doing it. It doesn't matter. India will ensure that its own national interest is first. And that's how it's going to go. So that's why India has banned wheat exports for now. Yash says, recently the government of India has ordered VPN service providers to keep logs for five years. Is this decision good or bad? Will this affect a normal VPN user who doesn't use VPN for illegal activities? It will affect nobody who doesn't use, who doesn't indulge in any illegal activity. Nothing at all. Nothing will change for you. Your life will go on just as it has always gone. Nothing will change for you. At the back end, whatever happens, you were never aware of it anyway. Now you've heard something makes no difference to your daily life. And how do you know that these VPN providers were not already logging everything and, and keeping records or logs for whatever years? All of these companies, they share data with the government. Have you ever heard of PRISM? Uh, I think uh, more than a decade ago, this PRISM mass surveillance program came to light when Edward Snowden defected from the US to Russia. And he... Uh, revealed to the world how the Americans are collecting data of all kinds from people in other countries, from all across the world, because they have this monopoly on social media, on the internet, on all that. And that's why they're able to collect uh, metadata, granular data. They know exactly what you think. They know where you've been. They know what sites you visit, good sites, bad sites, whatever. They know exactly what you, what's going on in, uh, in your life. They may even understand you better than you understand yourself. And that was 10, 12 years ago. And just imagine how it is today. So all of your data is already being logged. But it's being logged by not your government, but by foreign governments. Right? So now the government of India has, or has implemented, institu instituted this new policy in which VPN service providers will keep logs and share them with the government on demand. Well, that's good. See, this concept of privacy, it's, it's, it's an illusion. It's a myth. There is no such thing as privacy online. You have a track. You have a record. Everything you've done on online is essentially logged somewhere. There is no such thing like privacy. The West likes to talk about privacy and all that, but uh, it is the worst breaker of privacy in the world. So the thing, so what's a VPN? Yeah, let's talk about what a VPN is. VPN is virtual private network. Essentially, it allows you, It uh, if you buy a VPN service, it means that your service provider, VPN provider, will uh, it will allow you to hide your IP address and location whenever you are browsing the internet or, or going to any website. So they will not, the website, if it is using cookies or whatever place you're visiting, your uh, tracks will be kind of covered. Your actual IP address will be masked and you will have better data encryption. So well, let's say you have... Uh, VPN, uh, you have bought a VPN service, it's uh, installed on your phone, and you are in a public location, you're using public Wi-Fi, and you want to do a bank transaction. So if your location is exposed, if your IP address is exposed, then, then there's a higher higher chance of, of your bank account getting, uh, getting hacked. So if you use a VPN, that kind of, that uh, provides you extra layers of security. So that is still going to be there. The only thing is that VPN is no longer going to be anonymous or, or private. It actually no longer was. There is this uh, 
famous email provider called Proton Mail. They their USP Unique Service Unique uh, Service Proposition Unique Selling Proposition USP was that it was completely private and they do not keep they do not uh, keep any records of what you do, and yet eventually it was revealed that they were keeping track and keeping records of what people were doing. So their entire USP was was a lie. So that's how it always has been. There is no such thing as privacy online. So you just need to deal with it and get used to it. And the reason why the government of India is is has is implementing this policy is to to crack down on cyber fraud and uh, cyber terrorism and actual terrorism. So it's possible that certain uh, terrorist elements may use VPN services to mask their footprint online and and communicate securely with other terrorists in other parts of the well of the surface of the planet so if uh, these logs are kept then the government of india will be able to crack down upon them will be able to track them and apprehend them and maybe even prevent crimes and terrorism it will also uh, ensure that uh, the incidence of cyber crime bank fraud scams etc all of that comes down so actually it's a very good thing the government of india is doing this in the pursuit of the national interest and i think we should all support that so please uh, understand that there is no such, such thing as privacy online you may think what you're doing is private someone knows about it or some machine some algorithm knows about it and it categorizes and classifies you according to your behavior online so be aware of that please okay rakshit says in the us we see black people demanding rights and equality and want to acknowledge the atrocities by european settlers but why don't we see native americans doing the same this is a very good question so let us understand that uh the white settlers the european settlers did perpetrated un- untold incredible atrocities on two ethnicities the black people and the natives the natives the native americans are the true owners of the land the entire continent of north america actually belongs to the native americans it has been theirs for thousands of years the white europeans the, the settlers they came in in the last 500 or so years only they usurped the land they stole the land and carried out a horrific genocide of the natives and also what they did was they enslaved the black people whom they imported from africa like goods so this the entire success of north america two nations america us usa and canada is built upon it is built upon the genocide of the native americans and the enslavement of the, of the african americans so the black people also have been subjected to horrific atrocities there is absolutely no denying that and today i'm glad to see that this has uh, this is being recognized today and black lives do matter now i mean if you even look at the track record of the us in the last 50 years it's been horrible if you are a black person then you have a much higher probability of being shot for no reason by the cops this is a fact so these days uh, black lives matter has be- has become a thing and black people are being more represented in the media in the tv uh in in overall uh, social life and all that which is good but to some extent it's all pretense because there 
even now the black people the african americans they don't have their own political party which which looks out for their interests why isn't there a political party that looks out for the interests of the african american people it's not there everything is force fitted in two parties into two parties the republicans or the democrats and these days the democrats call, claim that they represent all the minority rights and all that which is very nice to know and yet like you point out nothing is being done to acknowledge the genocide of the of the native americans the native americans are still marginalized they are still treated like second class citizens there is still this horrific epidemic of missing uh women when a native american woman goes missing or a girl goes missing nothing is done about it typically the cops don't even take any action and they are they're still forced to live on these reservations you know segregated ghettos uh so so that's the kind of uh, treatment that is still meted out to the native americans and they are still marginalized in the 21st century so what's truly happening is that the political class of the us is using the issue of black rights and and black uh, atrocities uh, for political gains that's what it is doing so it is good that the plight of the black people of the african american people is now being highlighted it is a very good thing but why is the same not happening for the native americans they are still marginalized so that is the hypocrisy of the west they don't there it is still a racist society it is still a highly unequal unequal society it is still a society in which certain sections of the society are marginalized they are still demonized in some ways stay don't get off reservation that's what hillary clinton said once in the during the 2016 presidential campaign don't get off the reservation that is a racist phrase so the us and the west is still a very racist place you can see that happening in real time in eastern europe all of that came out in the open when the war began in ukraine you could see how the the, the amount of racism that um, african students and indian students has, had to face so that is not just characteristic of eastern europe it's spread all across the west these attitudes they were kept below the surface for a very long time but the, the the attitudes were always there the undercurrent of racism has always been there in the western world so you see that it, oh, in this case the native americans are still completely marginalized they are still second class citizens and no one cares that's how it is so that is the hypocrisy of the so called progressive liberal types they are progressive and liberal only when it comes to certain certain sections of the society not to all they don't treat everyone equally that is the textbook definition of racism and inequality okay umkar says who are the original inhabitants of australia and new zealand what was their culture like excellent question let's take a look at the map because as you know i am a very big fan of the map so let's go there so as you can see this is india right you can see where india is if you go south and east from india you reach australia and further east from australia you have new zealand which is essentially two big islands and a few smaller ones and australia includes the big landmass the continent of australia and tasmania which is an island to the south of new of of victoria 
so that is australia and that is new zealand the original inhabitants let's talk let's take australia first the original inhabitants of australia are the australian aboriginal people the native australians and they have inhabited this continent for about at least i would say 60000 years uh, you can look up the exact amount of years the, the exact uh, dating online but roughly about 60000 years at least they have lived on the continent of australia so uh, so the native australians the aboriginal australians are the original inhabitants and the true uh, owners of the continent of australia the white colonization the european colonization of australia have began just about two and a half centuries before today approximately about two to one and a half centuries before today before that there were no white people no europeans in australia and today as you can uh, as you can all see the uh, native australians the australian aborigines have been completely marginalized their land the best parts of australia have been stolen from them they are segregated more or less as you can see that the nice parts of australia the coastal parts essentially the eastern and southern coast of australia which is the uh, parts of australia with good climate and greenery etc they have all been taken over by the colonizers by the colonialists by the settlers and the arid inhospitable terrain of australia is where you can still see some native australians living places like alice springs for instance where you have significant native australian presence and various other places right cairns darwin and various other places so they were the, the australian aborigines are the original inhabitants of australia about 5000 years before today you will see that there was an introgression of indian genetics into the native australian population so today the australian or the native australians the australian aboriginal people have about between 5 to 10% indian ancestry it's because of a voyage made by ancient indians about 5000 years before today to australia and they clearly settled down over there and intermingled and intermarried with the natives and that also brings uh, introduced the australian wild dog the dingo into australia which is essentially the nothing but the indian dog species so that is about australia when it comes to new zealand new zealand is believed to be complete to have been uninhabited free of human settlement until about 8 or 900 years before today so about 8 or 900 years before today the uh, polynesian peoples called the maoris settled down in new zealand so the true inhabitants the true owners of new zealand are the maori people and then you had the same thing as in australia the european colonialists came to new zealand they had these this conflict with the maori people not the maori people are a war like people so there was this violent conflict with the europeans but eventually the maoris lost they were subjugated and the land was again stolen from them and today i think the maori people constitute between 15 to 17% of the total population of new zealand everybody else is of essentially from the british islands white people european english speaking people most of the others and even among those 15 16% of the people who are of maori ethnicity 
only about uh, one fifth of them can actually speak some form of the Maori language. So of the entire population of New Zealand, only about 3% of the people, 3% can speak the Maori language. Everybody else speaking, speaks English. So as you can see, the Maori culture has been wiped out. The Maori language is close to extinction. The land has, has been stolen from the natives and they are marginalized today. And there are, there is a much higher rate of crime and homelessness and drug addiction and alcohol abuse and all that among the Maori people compared to the white people. And similarly for Australia, the Aboriginal people have a much, much uh, lower life expectancy and much higher incidence of substance abuse and all kinds of other problems. They are also treated like the, like the way the African Americans are treated, treated in uh, in uh, North America. The cops are much more likely to to shoot them or to imprison them on no charges, etc. So that's how it is. A very racist society, a very brutal society. The true inhabitants are marginalized. The culture of the native Australians is a very peaceful, gentle culture. It is one with nature. It uh, kind of recognizes nature as the mother, as, uh, as sacred, as divine polytheistic culture. So that's how it is. In, in some ways, there are some parallels with Indian culture. So that is about the original inhabitants of Australia and New Zealand and their culture. Himangi says, how can India take its revenge for all the humiliations it faced from the Turks and the Europeans? The best form of revenge is success. So that's it. India needs to succeed. India needs to, needs to rise again. India is not an emerging nation. India is not an emerging economy. It is a re-emerging economy and nation and civilization. So the best form of revenge is for India to rise to its full potential and reclaim its original historical position in the global sphere. Essentially as an economic, cultural, civilizational and military superpower. And as the pioneer, as the as the nation that is at the forefront of science and technology, uh, it is quite dispiriting to see people disparage science, that science is wrong. Come on, India invented science. So what India needs to do is India needs to rise. India needs to become prosperous, successful, and powerful. That is the best revenge. Then everything will, will fall into place. So that's what I can say. Okay, two questions from Dungar Singh Chauhan. Any updates on the James Webb Telescope? And can the James Webb Telescope help us understand anything about Oumuamua? Okay, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, in case uh, some of you may not know, is a new space telescope that has been launched. It was launched uh, in December, at the end of December last year, 2021. And it has... Uh, after a journey of a month or so, it reached its destination in space at the, uh, L, I think, the L3 Lagrange point, which it will orbit. And it's going to peer deep into space. It is an improved, it's a much bigger uh, space telescope compared to the Hubble Space Telescope. The mirror is much larger and it operates primarily in the infrared domain. And it will essentially function as a uh, time machine. It will peer further back and further far away into space than the Hubble Space Telescope ever could have done. So it's a much more powerful space telescope and uh, the instruments have all been calibrated, more or less calibrated by now. 
initially the each of the segments the hexagonal segments of the mirror was producing a different distinct image of each star but now they have all been focused together the the alignment is done and it is more or less it has almost reached its uh, operating temperature which is like all very close to absolute zero so it's almost ready it's already taking images the images are coming out very good so it is almost ready i think we could uh, start start seeing the first science data within a month or two at at most so we are already in the middle of may i think most likely within the next month or so we should be able to see the first science uh, data coming in from the uh, from the james webb telescope space telescope so that is the status as of now very exciting so can the james webb space telescope help us understand anything about oumuamua not quite it is not a telescope that is designed to focus on a narrow point in space so if you want to uh if you want to study oumuamua with a telescope you would have to focus on a very narrow point in space right so what is oumuamua it is a it is what looks like a space rock of some kind which essentially is now known to have come from outer space it is not something that was part of the solar system it came from outside the solar system it passed through it uh, went around the sun in a hyperbolic orbit i'm not sure if, if it was hyperbolic or parabolic most likely hyperbolic and it's now going back out into outer space it will never come back again as far as we know so uh and uh, there has been some speculation that it it may have been an artificial object because uh the amount of of light it was reflecting was kind of excessive and it seemed to change its speed like acceleration kind of thing you know which is not normal for a space rock so some people have speculated or claimed that it is uh, an artificial object maybe some kind of probe that came into the solar system so uh so yeah that's the claim that's been made and uh, there is no real way right now of of studying it because it's so small and it's already so far away it may be possible to catch up with it if we launch a spacecraft this year or maybe in the next year then maybe one could be able to catch up with it in the next decade or decade and a half possibly in that case we we would be able to uh, study it but the james webb teles- telescope is not designed to focus on a very narrow point in space it's focused to uh, it is designed to focus on a large on large areas of space and collect lots of data and information so uh so i don't expect the james webb space telescope to be used for studying oumuamua there will be planetary science done with this with this telescope solar system objects will be investigated because many of our solar system objects they emit radiation in the uh, in the infrared wavelengths so yeah in that case we will get some new information but not in the case of oumuamua bra bra says what is the breton woods system let me just take a look at the live chat is there any issue with the with the image i think it's all fine all right so the question is what is the breton woods system the breton woods system is the economic system that was created by the victorious powers of the second european tribal war which is better known as world war 2 so the victorious powers in the second world war 
was actually the victorious power, which is the United States. So the United States created this Bretton Woods system along with its uh, allies, the victorious, the, the the countries that were on the victorious side. And it is called the Bretton Woods system because it there was a conference which took place, a two or three week conference that took place in the Bretton Woods Hotel in the US. So what was done is that as part of the system, as part of the agreement, the US dollar was institutionalized as the global reserve currency. It was pegged to gold. I think $35 an ounce or something like that. Look it up. I'm not sure. Most likely that, that sort of price. So the US dollar was institutionalized as the proxy for gold and it was made the default international currency. That's the first thing of the, the that's the first uh, pillar of the Bretton Woods system. And also two uh, institutions were created, they created the IMF and the World Bank. So these are two institutions that still exist today. The ostensible aim of these institutions was to provide uh, finances and support to developing countries and countries which were de devastated in the Second World War and that sort of thing. The IMF and the World Bank, which still exist today. So the dollar became the default reserve international currency. It was pegged to the price of gold. Uh, so this agreement happened in 1944, I think, and it became fully operational in the late 1950s. So, and until 19, until the 1970s, the US dollar remained pegged to gold. And then the US President Richard Nixon kind of devalued the price of the dollar or the, or, and eventually delinked the dollar from, from gold, from the price of gold. So the, so the dollar became a free-floating currency. It was no longer linked to gold and the US could print as many dollars as they wanted. It actually eventually became the petrodollar. It became tied in a way to the price of oil because oil transactions, transactions are all mostly done nowadays in US dollars. So the Bretton Woods system kind of collapsed in the 1970s and yet the hegemony it created still exists. The American hegemony. The entire global financial system is more or less predicated on the US dollar. It is based in the US dollar, so which gives the United States enormous leverage globally, economic leverage. It can impose sanctions on any country which cuts the country off from the US dollar, which means the country cannot transact anything with the rest of the world without paying very heavy prices. And uh, the IMF, the World Bank also, they are instruments of essentially Western or US hegemony and so on. So the Bretton Woods system, even though it collapsed in the 1970s, it created the American economic hegemony that we still see today. So it all began in 1944 in the end stage of the Second World War. So that in brief is about the Bretton Woods system. Samarth says, what should be India's position on this on, on South Korea's desire to join the Quad? Let it join the Quad. Let's make it uh, a quintet. No longer the Quad, a quintet. You know what? Let's examine what the Quad is. Let's go to the map and take a look at the Quad countries. Which are the countries that constitute the Quad? You have the United States. You have Australia, Australia, you have Japan, 
and you have India. Four countries constitute the Quad. Now, the US is the global superpower. Australia is a US corporation or a US colony. Japan is under US military occupation since 1945. It is a US vassal state. Only India has an independent foreign policy. So you have India and three nations, which are either the US or extensions of the US. So it is essentially an Indo-US collaboration of, of some kind. That's what the Quad is. Now, the objective of the Quad obviously is to counterbalance China. India obviously will feel threatened by the rise of China. China has in the historically shown it's, that it is not reliable, that it uh, seeks to break India, that it uh, sees India as a threat. It does not seek India to do well. And China is obviously a very large economy, like uh, five times that of India today in terms of uh, overall GDP. And it has a correspondingly much larger military strength. So obviously India would want to ally with other nations, ally or, or partner with other nations in order to counterbalance China. The US is obviously alarmed at the rise of China. So it also wants to use India as a counterweight in Asia to China. And why not go in with the other vassal states like Australia and, and Japan? Because Australia also feels threatened, threatened by China, by the rise of China. The Chinese have infiltrated deep into Australia. Their tentacles are deep into Australian politics, into the Australian economy and various walks of life. So, so the Australians are really alarmed about the rise of China. There is this new development. The Solomon Islands have inked a pact with China, which has military dimensions. So you could have Chinese missiles at Australia's doorstep, like the, like the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s, that sort of situation. And obviously, Japan also is alarmed about the rise of China because the Chinese seek to destabilize and eventually, hopefully, possibly destroy Japan, right? So all of these nations see China as a threat, rightfully so. And that's why these four countries are together in this uh, quadrilateral dialogue, it's called, right? Now, South Korea also has... Well, it, it doesn't have very good relations historically with China. Uh, North Korea is a China, Chinese satellite state. South Korea is a U.S. vassal state. It is under military occupation by the U.S. since the 1950s. Permanent U.S. military occupation. So South Korea itself is like an extension of the U.S. Just like Japan and Australia are U.S. vassal states. Similarly, China, uh, South Korea is also a U.S. vassal state. So whether South Korea officially comes into the Quad or not, it doesn't make much of a difference. It will anyway do whatever the US tells it to do. It is an instrument of the US. So whether it is officially part of the Quad or not, it is anyway on the side of the Quad, in the same boat as the Quad. So as far as India is concerned, uh, it doesn't really make much of a difference. Obviously, there are things like optics and diplomacy and all that. If uh, South Korea joins the Quad, then it, it looks like the Quad is embarking on an expansion the way NATO expanded in the in Europe. And that might uh, be seen by the Chinese as some kind of provocation. So maybe it may not be the best idea for South Korea to join the Quad. Anyway, it makes no difference because South Korea is anyway an extension of the US and as such is in the same boat. And therefore, even if it is not actually officially part of the Quad, its policies will be anyway aligned with those of the Quad. So it really makes no difference in the real world. Okay, Lone Wolf says, 
Thank you for this video. The pacifist ideology was the reason why many years ago I rejected the Indian part of my ancestry. I am mixed race. My mother is 100% Indian. I had in fact, in fact presumed that my mother's ancestors were weaklings and nothing to be proud of. So it's music to my ears to find that my ancestors did in fact have a warrior spirit. I would like to find out more about their warrior culture. Who were the greatest Indian warriors? What their stories and deeds? Where can I find this information? What is a good starting point? Unfortunately, I don't speak my ancestors' language and can only read uh, English translations at the present. So, yeah, many people believe that India is a nation of weaklings. That's what we have all been taught. That's the kind of uh, that's the kind of image that has been projected by Indian and Western historians. India's historians are essentially puppets of the, of the West. They have always towed the Western line. There is no new real, real research coming out of India since the past 70 plus years. So yeah, there is this, this image of Indians as weaklings. I myself used to dislike reading Indian history because it was so dispiriting and depressing, all full of defeats and all, until I discovered the real Indian history. So the depressing part is just the past 1000 years, which I call the which, which I call India's millennium of humiliation. Before that, India was the greatest civilization in the world. It is the oldest continuously existing civilization the world has ever known. And India was a military, uh, was a country of military excellence. As we know, the, Cho the Cholas conquered Southeast Asia all the way to the Philippines, right? Maritime conquest. Uh, the Guptas conquered, uh, reconquered Afghanistan and parts of Central Asia. Lalitaditya Muktapida conquered large parts of Central Asia, even some parts of present-day Xinjiang. The Kushans had uh, their their empire stretched from the Caspian Sea to the Aral Sea, and it included the Tarim River Basin part, which is most of today's present-day Xinjiang region of China, and so on and so forth. Uh, the Yamnaya invaders of, Engl of of Europe, who completely transformed the genetics of Europe, were of Indian origin, and so on and so forth. So, uh, unfortunately, the problem is that you will not find much, most of these things that I just mentioned, you won't find them in any history textbook. Our history textbooks want to portray a very weak and pacifist kind of image of India that stems from the ideology of Mohandas Gandhi, who kept on insisting on turning the other cheek and never fight back. So unfortunately, mo most textbooks, whether they are written by foreign authors or Indian authors, do not mention any of this in any detail. Uh, if you want to learn about the Kushan conquests and the, the Gupta Empire, etc., even the Chola Empire, uh, one of the good sources is the uh, is the author R.C. Majumdar, who essentially wrote his books nearly a century ago. And yet, so, so much of the information, at least some of the information is kind of outdated. And yet they are excellent reference books for those portions of Indian history. And uh, what what I have done is I have uh, researched, I've, I've read research papers, journal articles, etc., from which I got much of my information. But I can't really think of any other textbook or history book apart from the books by R.C. Majumdar that go into any detail about these periods of Indian history. But uh, most of the information is is available online in different places. You have to be judicious in judging whether the information you are reading is correct or not because some of these are just blog posts obviously blog posts are not authoritative 
uh, I would say read research papers, research articles from uh, peer-reviewed journals, etc. From and, and uh, if you can, uh, yeah, so that would be a good starting point. And uh, yeah, so that's what I can say. But uh, this entire image of India as as a nation of weaklings, as uh, a nation with this uh, ideology of losers, the ideology of Mohandas Gandhi, that is a false image. India was entirely different. India was a nation of saints and scholars and also warriors and also farmers. Everybody was there. Everybody contributed equally. I mean, you can't have a great civilization without equal contributions from all walks of life. And you had that in India. India was the greatest maritime seafaring civilization of all time. And you will not see this being mentioned anywhere. I mean, how did the Cholas conquer all the way to the Philippines? How did the people of Kalinga inculturate Southeast Asia uh, almost 2,000 years before the Cholas and so on. So there's a lot that is not taught, but it's all nowadays available online. You just know, need to learn to look for the information in the right places. So all the best to you, sir. Okay, bro, again. Do you think Russia's foreign policy revolves around Mackinder's heartland thesis? Some policy experts believe that a multipolar world which India and Russia seek is an unstable world. What are your thoughts on that? In order for India's plans against the Chinese, Tibet plays a vital role. How do you think, what do you think could be changed where 50% of the, of the Tibetan population is today uh, Han Chinese? Actually, today more than 50% of the population of Tibet is Han Chinese. The Chinese have completely transformed the demographics of Tibet. The Han Chinese, the Chinese-speaking people, are now a majority in Tibet. The Tibetans are now a minority in their own land, in their own country. So that's where we are. Anyway, uh, do I think Russia's foreign policy revolves around Mackinder's heartland thesis? Good question. So what is Mackinder's heartland thesis? So Mackinder was a British, I think British historian, as far as I rem remember, most likely British. So he came across, he came, he uh, proposed this theory or this thesis, which is called the Heartland Thesis, which says that the uh, power that controls Eurasia and Africa is going to control the world and rule the world. So according to his theory, Europe, Asia and Africa are the heartland of the world island and uh, the Outer islands or outer lands are the North and South America and Australia and the other islands. So according to Mackinder, the power that controls Eurasia and Africa is going to rule the world. And the heartland, the actual heartland is north of the Himalayas all the way up to Siberia and west of the Volga, I think, and east of the Yangtze. So this entire region of Eurasia, north of the Himalayas, between Eastern Europe and uh, Eastern Asia is the actual heartland of the world. And according to Mackinder, the nation or the power that controls the heartland is going to rule the world. And of course, you have Mehan's thesis, that, which is the Rimland thesis, which says that the maritime powers will rule the world. So whichever nation can control the seas, the oceans of the world is going to control the world. So these are two competing hypotheses. These are still theories. Nobody has actually tested them out. There has never been an instance in the entire history of the world where any power controls the entire heartland of uh, 
of Eurasia. So Russia, obviously, as you know, occupies much of the heartland of Mackinder. So yes, it will obviously consolidate, it will seek to consolidate its power in that region. The Chinese are um, embarking upon a dual strategy of trying to control the Rimland, which is the oceans, the trade routes, and also parts of the heartland via the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, the BRI. So, uh, yeah, these are two powers that seek to control various parts of the world. And obviously, as we know, the Americans are the dominant power in Western Europe, parts of Northern Europe. They're trying to expand eastwards. And they are also the dominant power in the oceans. But there has never been a time in the entire history of the world that one power has controlled the entire heartland, what uh, Mackinder defined as the heartland. So I don't think Russia's foreign policy revolves around the heartland thesis. Uh, They wish to stop NATO's expansion and they also wish to, in the long run, counterbalance China in some way. They have to rise again for that. So that is, in short, what Russia's foreign policy is. Long-term foreign policy is likely to be. Uh, some policy experts believe a multipolar world will be unstable. Well, th- that's just a hypothesis. How do we know it will be unstable? Maybe it will be more stable. Maybe it will be a much more fairer and egalitarian world. A world with less hegemony from one, one source. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's very, people can believe anything, but what's the evidence that it's going to be like that? There is no such evidence. Experts have opinions. Even non-experts have opinions. You know what they say about opinions, right? Everyone has one. It doesn't make any difference. It, this this uh, belief or opinion is not really based on any actual data. So it's just an opinion. It doesn't really matter. And uh, Tibet plays a vital role. The Han population is over 50% in Tibet. What can India do? Right. India can do nothing right now. Uh, someday if we are able to liberate Tibet... Then we will think about it about that when we come to that that, uh, that point in history. Right now, there's no point thinking about that. Imperial says, should states in our country be subordinates of the center, or should they have some autonomy to maintain the so-called federal structure? What is this federal structure, and why is it so important? What's really important is the long-term national interest. So the national interest is what we need to look uh, look after, not some idea of India which incorporates a federal structure or whatever else it is. And a nation, a civilization state like India, which is so large, it is a subcontinent-sized civilization, a nation of that scale needs to be ruled from the center. It needs a very strong central authority that rules rules it. Look at the past few thousand years of Indian history and think about the times when India was the most prosperous and the most powerful. Each of these times, India had a very strong central government. That's how it has always been. So whenever India has done well, it has had a strong central government and no so-called federal structure. And of course, there has been uh, self-rule at the, le- at the level of the uh, villages and cities and towns. So there has always been some form of democracy in India, but an Indian hybrid form of democracy. India has had an imperial system and localized democracy, uh, which which, uh, essentially means that people can decide how they're going to live and how they're going to govern themselves at the local level. 
तो दैट इज वॉट इज बेस्ट सूटेड फॉर इंडिया स्टेट्स आई थिंक हैव टू मच ऑटोनॉमी टू मेनी स्टेट्स गो इन डायरेक्शन दैट आर एक्चुअली इनिमिकल टू द इंडियन नेशनल इंटरेस्ट I'm not naming any specific state, but we can see examples today of that happening in real time. So I think states have too much power. There is too much so-called democracy in India, like the Chinese are fond of saying. So states, first of all, <clears throat> one should also be open to the idea to, to have more states. Some states are enormous, three hundred million plus population. Some states have a population of two million. we should have states that are of approximately similar size and the smaller a state is going to be or a smaller an administrative unit is going to be the better governed it is going to be because there will be more proximity for each person for each citizen to the government so uh, eventually some restructuring of india needs to happen what really matters in the long run is the overall long term national interest uh, not these little petty disputes between states and uh, more autonomy for states and all that states have too much autonomy right now too many of them go in directions that are very that are not good for the national interest so this needs to be revisited at the right time not yet okay bidanto biswas says would it have been better if mikhail gorbachev was the first president of russia instead of boris yeltsin although many people blame gorbachev for the disintegration of the ussr he had realized the fact that the ussr needed some political and economic changes if gorbachev was the first president would would the shock therapy have been less intensive and russia be in comparatively less turmoil and could it also have changed the political the present political scenario let's understand what really happened the russians consider gorbachev to be a traitor they regard him as a western puppet as an agent of the us so he introduced in the 1980s these changes you said that he realized that ussr needed some political economic changes why these changes destroyed the nation he instituted perestroika and glasnost opening up and self criticism and uh, admission of guilt and what not it made the ussr look weak it made the government look weak every government has shortcomings every government has failings you think the us government did not have any shortcomings and failings at the, at the time but they never admitted any of the shortcomings but gorbachev embarked upon this crusade of of uh, self criticism of perestroika of glasnost of revealing what's wrong with the ussr and of uh, allowing more autonomy and allowing free speech there is no such thing as free speech actually you know that Anyway, so he did all those things, and the actions that it took in the 1980s, they culminated, they resulted in the disintegration of the USSR. Right. So he destroyed the nation that his predecessors had built. He destroyed essentially the empire his predecessors had built. That's what he did. So his job was done. his job was done he 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 became the darling of the west he still is the darling of the west he is still a word of wisdom a word of reason he is still critical of the way russia is run today so it's it's quite clear that uh, there is some truth some truth some some element of truth in this allegation that he is in he was in some way pro west or possibly even an agent of the west so his job was to destroy the ussr his job was done and then he was sidelined and then a new job had to be done 
So out of the USSR came out one big entity, which was Russia. Now, Russia was still extremely powerful, extremely powerful with a huge economy and a powerful state machinery and a fully industrialized nation. And the industries were in the hands of the, of the state, of the government. So that's where Boris Yeltsin comes in. Boris Yeltsin uh, played a major role in the so-called uh, disintegration of the USSR, not the so-called the actual disintegration of the USSR. Uh, he was part of the protests. He jumped on, he climbed a tank and posed in front of the Western media and so on. And eventually he became the first president of Russia. And what he did during his presidency, apart from drink copious amounts of alcohol, what he did was he destroyed the Russian economy thoroughly. See, it's like this. Russia, the USSR was a communist state. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. All property was collectivized. The nation's wealth was collectivized. The Its, its custodian was the Communist Party. But the wealth industries and all property belonged to the people and the entire GDP everything the USSR had built up had been built by the labor of the people so when Russia became emerged out of the USSR everything that that was present in Russia the industries, the land, the, the money, the foreign reserves, everything it belonged to the people it was the result of decades of labor done by the people now, what this fellow Yeltsin did is that he privatized everything and he placed Russia's industries in the hands of a few crooked people who are now called the oligarchs, right? And he ensured that he appointed the worst people to run all these industries. And oh, in just in a period of just a few years, all of these industries were essentially bankrupted. So the first thing he did was he took all of the money that was the fruit of decades of labor of the Russian people and he placed all that money in the, in the pockets of a few corrupt people. He stole all the money. All the money was stolen. The people's money was stolen and it became the property of these corrupt oligarchs. And secondly, the oligarchs proceeded to destroy thoroughly the Russian economy and destroy the industries of Russia. And they parked away enormous amounts of money in the West. Right? All these Russian oligarchs have properties in, in the West, in London, etc. And much of the money is still sitting there. So that was the role that Boris Yeltsin played. He was also essentially an agent of the West. So he was suited, suited for this role of destroying the Russian economy. Gorbachev was more suitable to destroying the USSR. So they both played their role. It's only after Vladimir Putin came to power that he stopped the bleeding and started rebuilding Russia. And that's why the Second Cold War started. And it's, it's now slowly becoming a hot war. So I don't think Gorbachev should have been... I mean, Gorbachev did his job of destroying the USSR and Yeltsin did his job of destroying Russia. And it's only because of an accident that someone like Putin came to power and he turned out to be the guy who slowly transformed the fortunes of Russia. So, uh, so that's what I have to say about this. Okay, Animish says, what can we learn from the strategy Putin used in Chechnya? How was he able to crush the terrorism? 
can we do anything of that sort in Kashmir? Okay, let's understand Chechnya. What happened there? First of all, when it comes to Chechnya, the people of Chechnya have an enormous amount of respect for Vladimir Putin. The, the president, is it, of Chechnya, Kadyrov, Ramzan Kadyrov, the son of Ahmad Kadyrov. So the current president of Chechnya, who is essentially the de facto king of Chechnya, is Ramzan Kadyrov. If you go to his house, if you go to his palace, you will see two enormous portraits in the main room, in the hall. One of these enormous portraits is Ahmad Kadyrov, Ramzan Kadyrov's father. And the second portrait is that of Vladimir Putin. So essentially, Ramzan Kadyrov treats Vladimir Putin on par with his own father. right? And he is completely and utterly loyal to Vladimir Putin. And the Chechens are now completely loyal to Russia. They are now fighting in Ukraine on behalf of Russia. Uh, a significant portion of the Russian military comes from Chechnya because Chechnya is one place where uh, the birth rate is 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 greater than the, than the death rate. So the population is growing over there. But it was not always the case. There was a time when Chechnya tried to secede from the USSR, from Russia itself. After the disintegration of the USSR, Chechnya was part of Russia. Now they wanted to become an independent country. They actually declared independence in the 1990s. The Russians tried to uh, reintegrate Chechnya through military means under Boris Yeltsin. The first Chechnyan war, Chechen war happened in the mid-90s. Look up the dates. I don't memorize dates. It was in the mid-90s and the Russians lost the first Chechen war. That was a disaster for Russia. Military disaster. Then after Vladimir Putin came to power, the first thing he did, more or less the first thing he did, it was on his, it was on the top of his list of priorities. He embarked upon the second Chechen war and he crushed the resistance. The Russian military crushed the resistance and Chechnya was reintegrated into Russia through brute force. It was like they pulverized, flattened Chechnya. It was brute force, overwhelming force, and it was uh, bloody and it was brutal. So what Putin did was that he cultivated certain elements of the Chechen so-called freedom struggle, who turned who turned their allegiance and became allies of Russia. One of them was Ahmad Kadyrov, who became the, the, I think he became the president after the war was over. He was assassinated and then his son became the president or whatever the title is of the head of the, of the, of the Republic. So uh, what Putin did is that he spoke to these Chechens in a language they understood. That is the language of power, the language of force, brute force. Some see every culture is different. There is nothing right or wrong about any culture. There is nothing especially good or bad. From a certain perspective, you can see it like that. So in some cultures, people respect wisdom, knowledge, refinement, civilization. In some cultures, people respect brute force and strength. So in the case of Chechnya, it's like they respect strength. They respect brute force. And Putin showed that he will be respected. He is worthy of respect. So the Chechens respect him today. So that's what he did. He was able to crush the terrorism with an iron fist. He smashed the resistance out of Chechnya. 
that's what it did we should not do that in kashmir the kashmiris are our own people they some of some elements may be there in currently in kashmir which may be pro pakistan or whatever that will be taken care of in due time we should not use the chechnya model in kashmir we are a civil, well we should we have a different way of doing things i'm sure we can do it in our own way without resorting to uh, overwhelming force or anything we should uh, see the people of kashmir are our own brothers and sisters they are the, the same blood as us some of them may be misguided we will reguide them right so let, that's what we should do we should not uh, uh, employ military means or brute force tactics okay saurab says what is the script of the mitanni kingdom how was this script deciphered which had vedic names what is their native language and what was the form of sanskrit found there vedic or post vedic mm. okay yeah that's essentially the gist of the question so let's go into what um, the mitanni kingdom or mitanni empire so let's go to the map once again i'm sure you all know where india is this is india let's go westwards inch by inch inch by inch this is a uh, temporarily the country of pakistan then you have gandhar which is now now called afghanistan you go further west you come to the land of the parsho people the persians the iranians you go further west you come to iraq mesopotamia and further west is anatolia so the mitanni kingdom or mitanni empire flourished in this region present day iraq syria and anatolia about 3 and 1/2000 years before today roughly roughly okay plus or minus a couple of centuries and it was in power for about 350 years 3 and 1/2 centuries or so so that is the mitanni kingdom its capital was vashokhanni which means in sanskrit the mine of treasure so uh, that was the mitanni kingdom or mitanni empire now what was the script that they used what was the language they spoke so first of all let's talk about the language the language that the people of this empire or kingdom spoke was the hurrian language which was which was which is an extinct language it was i think not an indo european language it was a, uh, it belonged to a local language family which is now no longer extant so that is the language that the people spoke the majority of the population but the aristocracy the royalty spoke a different language they spoke sanskrit not persian they spoke sanskrit and what form of sanskrit did they speak they spoke late vedic sanskrit not pre vedic or vedic sanskrit but late vedic sanskrit so the sanskrit language has evolved over the thousands of years vedic sanskrit the kind of sanskrit you find in the rigveda is different from the sanskrit you find in the later vedas so the so the sanskrit these people the 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 royalty the aristocracy of the mitanni kingdom spoke was late vedic sanskrit and we know because certain words that they used were not found in early vedic sanskrit one of the best examples is the word for night so the early vedic word for for night night time today today what is the sanskrit word for night it is ratri right that's the word that we can use in any indian language ratri so that is the word we use today for night time ratri so that was the word that was used in sanskrit for night time 
in the late Vedic phase, but in the early Vedic phase, during the Rig Vedic phase, there was a different word. And at that time, the word for night was Nakta. Nakta, N-A-K-T, Nakta. And that is where, that is the word from where the English word night comes from. The Latin word Nocte comes from. It comes from the Vedic Sanskrit word Nakta. But later, a new word came in, which was Ratri, which is what we use now. So the Mitanni royalty and aristocracy spoke late Vedic Sanskrit, not early Vedic Sanskrit, which means that they were from a time period much later than the time period of the Rig Veda. That clearly shows that, right? So that tells you clearly that the Rig Veda have been written a long time before uh, 1500 BCE. That's one of the ways of dating approximately the Rig Veda. Roughly, rough dating, right? So the native language of the aristocracy and the royalty of the Mitanni was late Vedic Sanskrit. They were migrants out of India. They had conquered this land and they were administering and ruling it. The natives spoke the Horian language, which was not an Indian or Indo-Iranian language. It was a different, it belonged to a different language family. So how do we know all this? Because we have found inscriptions. There is one very famous inscription. It's a it's an entire horse training manual, which can still be used today to train horses. It was written by a, a horse master whose name was Kikulli. And he wrote this entire training manual in the Hurrian language. But there were certain terms for which there was no word in the Hurrian language. And therefore, he had to use Sanskrit terms for that. So that's where we find the first evidence of written Sanskrit. So that's uh, so the script that was used for this in this kingdom was the cuneiform script. Uh, I think it was one of the Assyrian variants of the cuneiform script. As far as I know, or was it the Hittite variant? One of those variants of the cuneiform script. So how was the script deciphered? It took a long time. The first attempts to decipher the, the cuneiform script happened in the 1700s in the 18th century did not make much progress. Then in the 1800s, in the first half of the century, the 19th century, uh, people started, started studying the various inscriptions in cuneiform in Naksharostam and the Behistun Bagastan inscription in Persia. And slowly, slowly, by comparing it with other, other inscriptions, etc., and by hypothesizing that it would sound like Sanskrit, they were able to slowly crack the script. So the hypothesis, so these people who were trying to study the script had been to India and they had, they had they knew about the presence of Parsi people in India. You know, Persian uh, refugees who had come to India and who were given shelter in India quite magnanimously, I would add. So they knew that uh, there were similarities between Persian and Sanskrit. So they hypothesized that this script would sound like Sanskrit and it would be more or less just like Sanskrit. In using that hypothesis, they were able to slowly crack the script. And then they were able to find certain uh, inscriptions in two or three languages where they could compare the, the, the inscriptions and uh, verify whether their translation was correct or not. And they also found some kind of pot or something in Egypt which had an inscription in the cuneiform script and also in Egyptian hieroglyphics, which uh, gave them further clues. So it took a few decades, but the script was eventually cracked and they discovered that they were right. 
the ancient Persian language of the Bhagasthan inscription of the uh, Naksharostam inscription, etc. They sounded just like Sanskrit. They discovered that old Persian from the Haksha Manish dynasty time, 3000 years before today, was essentially an upper branch version of Sanskrit. A slightly corrupted version of Sanskrit. So that is the story of this entire matter. Good question, sir. Tushit says, when foreign tourists come to India, they go to very crowded and dirty places like uh, whatever in Delhi and whatever in, in uh, Mumbai. That's why people think India is a very poor country filled with slums. How can we change this perception? Well, the first thing is that slums do exist in India. But you are right. Foreigners, especially from Western countries, they love to visit slums. They do these slum tours in various parts of India, especially in some big cities where you have lots of slums. And one of the attractions for, for them for visiting India is to go and see slums and see how people live in slums. And somehow they find it very interesting. But the fact is that slums do exist in India today. I remember when I was a kid, I lived as a kid in Europe for a few years. And as a kid, a few years is like a lifetime, right? So when I first returned to India, the plane landed in one of the major cities of India. I will not name it. And on both sides of the highway, you had these slums. The plane is landing. You can see slums on both sides of the highway, huts, terrible conditions. And all these non-Indians, they were taking photographs out of the plane's windows. So if we, and you know, the, the thing is that, see, I'm not naming any place. I'm sure there are many big cities in India where you have slums. And at least in some of these places, these slums are deliberately kept in place as vote banks by the local politicians. I'm not naming any city. Please note that. But there are many places where this happens. We have the resources and the wherewithal to eliminate all slums in India today. We can create proper housing and construction and give people affordable housing. So why can't we do it? Some that's why I say that, you know, sir, the states have too much autonomy. Many of the policies that certain states are implementing and following are inimical to the national interest. India today has enough money to eradicate slums and homelessness forever. But we are still not doing it. So uh, this situation will continue as long as, as uh, the current system continues. There is, unfortunately, corruption in some places. There are certain politicians who are self-serving in some places. Not, I'm not saying all, some places, right? And uh, certain states, a few, I would imagine, I can maybe you can think of a few, couple of examples. There are some states where the policies are not very good. So as long as this system continues, the self-serving system with, with which, uh, which tolerates corrupt politicians, then these problems will continue. And as long as these problems continue, we will have slums and dirty places. And then foreigners who enjoy this sort of thing, they enjoy poverty tourism, slum tourism, they will keep on doing this. And the image of India as a dirty, poor country will, will be perpetuated. See how the Chinese have transformed their, their reputation and their image in the eyes of the world. They've been able to do it. We can also do it if we, if we want to. But I think it will take time because the system is so deeply entrenched 
that it, I think it's going to be at least another 10, 20 years before we start making significant changes. But it will happen. It will. Prashant says recently ISRO has developed bricks to build structures on Mars. Your views? Where does India stand in the space race? Ah, ISRO is. I, I'm not. I'm not sure if ISRO is uh, developing bricks. I heard some institutes in India, scientific institutes in India, were developing bricks. So I find that about as interesting as a cricket match between Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. No disrespect to either of these countries. That's the most boring thing ever. ISRO's job is not to build bricks. ISRO's job is to build the next generation of space rockets and take India forward into space. Why waste money on building bricks? You can use any brick on the moon, on Mars. That's not a big achievement if you have developed a brick. If that is being done, it's 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 unfortunate. It's terrible. It's very underwhelming. It's not some great achievement that we should be proud of. Developing bricks, bricks you can develop. Man, you don't need a scientific training to develop bricks. So ISRO's job is to develop the next generation of cutting-edge space technologies and rockets and space stations, and take India to the moon, to Mars. and further in the solar system and establish india as a major top 3 space power that's what isro's job is i am not criticizing the scientists the scientists don't make decisions they do as they are told it is the government and the administrators of isro who actually tell the scientists what to do the scientists have no real autonomy they simply follow orders so if they are told to de- deploy to 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 develop bricks they will develop bricks that's how it is where does india stand stand in the space race india has fallen behind in the in the space race a decade ago india was was at the forefront of the, of the space race uh, we had sent a space probe to mars on the first attempt not even the us was able to do that the only nation to to successfully send a spacecraft to mars in the first attempt and that to on a shoestring budget that de- demonstrated the incredible scientific Uh, ability of india scientists and of isro so that tells you what isro is capable of that's that tells you the kind of scientific scientific talent that india has but for the in the past few years nothing has happened so we had this one chandrayaan uh, attempt in uh, 2019 they should have sent a second chandrayaan spacecraft 6 months later and we are still still waiting for chandrayaan 3 when will it happen right of oh, the the chandrayaan orbiter succeeded but the lander failed for certain reasons i do not blame india scientists for for the failure of the lander the lander was perfect something else went wrong anyhow that's a different story so so india is not at the forefront of the, of the space race anymore the chinese and the americans are at the forefront uh the last year i think in the past 2 years since the pandemic began we hardly had five or six space launches from india the chinese must have done over 100 the americans have done well in excess of 100 in these past 2 years space x itself has launched uh, 60 70 80 i don't i'm not sure i don't know maybe more than 100 rockets so the pandemic did not stop or slow down the americans or the chinese but india everything came to a halt 
so india is kind of falling behind right now which is extremely disappointing extremely disappointing we have the potential the talent the ability to become the number one space power and if you are at the forefront of space you're going to be at the forefront of a whole wide variety of technologies which will make you a global superpower in the 21st century the two or three nations that are at the forefront of space exploration are going to be the two or three nations that rule the world so india needs to take this very seriously once people start colonizing the mars or the moon and mars there will not be enough space left there for other countries the chinese are making a beeline to to, to the moon so are the americans in the next 2 to 3 years by 25 2025 or 26 the americans plan to land human beings on the moon again probably by 24 i think so uh, they will obviously want to establish a permanent settlement on the moon the chinese also want to do that india should not get left behind it's like uh, the exploration of the oceans all over again there is this quest for new territories to conquer the next frontier is space it's the moon it's mars india has to ensure it is not left behind we have not even launched a human being into space yet so we need to get going with that right now it is very disappointing but we have the potential to become a space superpower in a matter of a couple of decades so i hope there are plans to to follow up on that anvesh says can we make it to mars as far as elon musk's dream is concerned what technological progress needs to be done to establish a human settlement on mars as of today 2022 we have the technology to send a human being to mars and bring him or her back safely but the technology has not been made foolproof and failure proof completely so there is a significant uh, probability of failure and it's okay if your rocket explodes or if your spacecraft is lost but it's a whole different thing if there's a person on it a human life especially in space is a whole different value so the, the the only thing that is stopping people right now is that there is a significant chance of something going wrong and you just don't want the the bad optics of losing a human life right so we already have the technology even isro can spend a spacecraft to mars using its feeble underpowered rockets pslv which is the tiny rocket compared to what uh, spacex has or china has so even isro can spend a spa- send a spacecraft to mars and isro already has the technology of a of a space capsule that can support human life it's not been tested thoroughly yet but we already have the technology we have already built one and we even tested some of it some of the components so uh, the chinese have been sending human beings into sp- into earth's orbit they have a small space station the russians have the technology the americans have the technology so it can already be we already have the components and the technology to send human beings to mars and possibly bring them back alive but uh, it has not yet been made completely foolproof fail proof so i expect that the first attempt on mars may happen by the late 2020s or the mid 2030s at the latest and the most likely elon musk would be the would want to be the person to uh, do that to launch uh, human beings via space x so 
that's what i see happening within a decade may at max a, de- a decade and a half okay ganpat says we know that it's almost impossible to travel travel faster than the, than the speed of light so are there other ways to travel in the universe can scientists develop it in the near future 100 a century century and a half uh, to develop other methods okay first of all it's not almost impossible to travel faster than the speed of light it is impossible to travel at the speed of light or faster impossible zero chance that's just what the laws of physics tell us so it's not almost impossible it's 100% impossible of course nowadays there is talk of uh, warp drive technologies there are certain solutions of einstein's field equations that uh, allow you to be to create a bubble of space time that travels within space travels of in some ways faster than, than the speed of light that that is still all hypothetical we're not still not sure if it is feasible but even if that happens it's couple of centuries in the future at least a century in the future what we can do right now is to try is to try and accelerate spacecraft to significant percentages of the speed of light maybe 20 or 30% of the speed of light that can be achieved in the next decade or so but what kind of spacecraft small spacecraft so, so there is a project called uh, breakthrough starshot which proposes using uh, radiation pressure photonic pressure using lasers pulsed laser array arrays of pulsed lasers to accelerate small micro spacecraft to 20 or 30% the speed of light and to send the entire big fleet of 1000 2000 spacecraft small ones to the nearest star proxima centauri and to send back images and data from there so that technology could be achievable in the next 10 or 20 years that could happen from the perspective of physics it's completely feasible it's completely possible it's only a question of developing the technology the lasers that can do that and uh, those spacecraft will have to be tiny small spacecraft just essentially little chips with some optical elements to take uh, images and and some transmitters to, to send to send the data back to earth so that kind of thing could happen in the next 10 20 years and if we can accelerate those spacecraft to about 30% of the speed of light they could reach proxima centauri in 2 3 or 4 decades and then you would need another 4 years for the signals to come back to earth so within half a century we could have the first close up images of a different star system so that is very much possible but uh, warp technology is still very much science fiction that i don't see that happening for the next century or so okay birupaksh says in theoretical physics will we ever get a final answer every time there has been some research done instead of answers we only come up with more and more questions this is a matter of concern but at the same time it's a perfect example of how beautiful our universe and physics is it's endless so will we ever get a final answer no i know we won't get a final answer so right now <clears throat> excuse me right now we understand less than 5% of the universe more than 95% of the universe is dark we don't know what it is we don't know what the laws of physics are that that govern it there may be new physics there may be new forces out there there is something called dark matter there is something called dark energy which collectively makes up more than 95% of the mass energy composition of the universe and we don't know anything about it 
so we understand less than 5% of the universe and even that understanding is rough and rudimentary even the standard model is not perfect there are there could be cracks appearing in the standard model of physics as well so uh, that's where we are so why do i say we will never get the final answer because we are not gods we have a small limited intellect there are limits to human intelligence let's not start believing we we, are, we will understand everything we are just a species of monkey we are the highest evolved ape on the planet that's all we are yesterday we were climbing trees and eating bananas now we are doing quantum mechanics it's just a small step there are lots of other steps we need to take to to actually start understanding the universe properly and maybe the limitations of our small tiny intellect are such that we may never understand the universe unless we evolve to something much higher in a few million years perhaps so and yet it is not bad it's not a question of concern for me i mean if we got all the fi- of the, all the final answers then after that what are we going to do there will be nothing left to find there will be nothing left to discover if we have the final answer as long as there are things that we have not discovered there is a mystery in the universe and what's more interesting and exciting than mystery why do we watch movies because there is a mystery we want to solve why do we read novels because there are mysteries in there we want to uncover the mystery we want to get the final answer it's the journey that's interesting the final answer is okay the journey is over right so uh 95% plus of the universe is unknown to us which i think is fantastic it's so exciting there is so much we can discover so i think it's great and i don't think we will ever get the final answer which is fine by me which is fine alpha beta says like the sun has an important role in life making planets and so on what role does a black hole have in the universe black holes are a big mystery they have a very significant role to play uh, black holes seem to have been the seeds of the early galaxies every major galaxy most major most galaxies that we know of have a supermassive black hole at the center which keeps which holds the galaxy together so it is that central supermassive black hole that that essentially holds the entire structure together with its massive gravity recently uh, the event horizon telescope was able to take the snapshot of the supermassive black hole at the center of our own galaxy uh, so that happened just this week i think or last week so it's the second black hole ever imaged obviously it's the it's the image of the uh, accretion disk around the black hole on the black hole itself which is dark but that's how it is so black holes have one role they hold galaxies together and we can feel the the gravitational effects of the black hole we just don't realize it every gravitating ob- object in the universe exerts a gravitational force on us we feel the, f- the the effects whether we realize it or not we feel it so the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy we can right now i can right now experience its its effects but i'm not quite sure where it's coming from that's how it is so that is one thing they hold galaxies together secondly uh they may be a significant percentage of the dark matter of the universe in the very early phase of the universe during the uh before inflation and even after inflation during the reheating epoch it is believed that because of quantum fluctuations 
enormous quantities of microscopic black holes may have been produced. These are called primordial black holes. And if these black holes possibly formed bound states, stable bound states and survived, then they would possibly form a significant percentage of the dark matter in the universe today. That's my theory. It's published. I'm a co-author of that. So, uh, so black holes could play lots of roles. We still don't know what black holes are really, right? Many of the objects we think are black holes may end up being something else. Who knows? So, uh, but it's clear that black holes play a significant role in the universe. They provide the gravitational framework for the galaxies and they may have a significant role to play in dark matter itself. We know dark matter exists everywhere. Right now in this room where I'm sitting, there is a wind of dark matter flowing through me. But we don't we don't uh, feel its effects because it is a purely gravitating particle or class of particles. And it's very small apparently. So there's dark matter going through me right now. Through me. Through me, inside me. And I don't feel it. So that also could be in some ways related to microscopic black holes, perhaps. But it all is still a matter of just theory. We still lack the means to actually experimentally test all of these things. So maybe in the future, maybe hopefully in our lifetimes. Chiching says how not to overthink when one is not busy or not working. See, the mind is a thinking machine. <laughs> in, in Indian philosophy, the mind is considered to be one of the sense organs, right? And the mind, it always thinks. Whether you are busy, whether you're working, whether you're actu actively studying something, actively participating in some activity, or whether you're sitting idle, the mind is always at work. It's always thinking. And uh, even when we are sleeping, the mind is thinking, and we call it dreams. So we experience dreams. Most of these dreams we forget. Some of them we may remember. But everybody dreams. And that is the subconscious mind at work. We don't quite know what is the purpose of dreaming. I think the question is different, obviously, how not to overthink. So overthinking is just the mind constantly going in all different directions, all kinds of thoughts coming to your mind, worries and random noise in the mind. The mind is full of noise. So how not to overthink takes practice. And the best way of doing it is through meditation. And the starting point of meditation is breath control, controlling your breath. And the easiest way of learning breath control is via pranayam. So in pranayam, you control your breath, then you focus on your breath and you control it in, variety, in a variety of ways. And if you can learn that, then you will be able to uh, start meditating effectively. Even that takes time. But meditation is all about calming the mind, stilling it, quieting it. And when anybody, anyone starts or tries meditating for the first time, it is extremely frustrating because the mind rebels against your attempt to calm it, to calm it and to quiet it. The more you try, the more noisy it gets and the more rebellious the mind gets. But you have to persevere at it takes weeks months sometimes but eventually there's a breakthrough and you can you get and you get better at that and over time you get really good at it and then that's when you're calm and focused so it's a process i think this is something that happens to everybody 
everybody's mind is always constantly gibbering jabbering away it's a noisy machine so um so yeah i think the best way is to is to meditate and meditate regularly you can start with 10 minutes a day and even before you start meditating you can start with uh, breath control which is pranayam so it's something you have to develop it's it's a skill it's essentially a skill that you develop over a long period of time and uh, if you are a teenager or something it's great you have plenty of time to do that so by the time you 18 or 20 you will be well versed in that so don't get frustrated if it doesn't work at first persevere take it one day at a time start with 10 minutes at a time and eventually you will get good at it and you will be able to calm the mind down and that has immense benefits in all aspects of life so great question and all the best okay the next question is by akash and akash asks this might be too specific but i am asking anyway because you have experience in this too software engineering versus data science which of these are more impactful and more in demand in the modern evolving world that's a good question so these are two things two separate things but there is a lot of overlap also between um, software development and data science so data scientists they essentially what they do is uh, they research and develop algorithms machine learning algorithms that's what data scientists do software engineers they develop software they focus on the software development life cycle right they do things like creating infra- infrastructure automation testing maintenance of software designing software designing software products and app- apps and all that software pro- engineers focus on programming object oriented programming and all that data science has a focus on statistics it has a focus on data analytics on predictive analytics on data sets you are working with data sets you're doing data manipulation you're creating models and things like that so that is all, all about data science both are impactful both are in, in demand i think if you if you look up the the statistics i think data scientists today earn slightly more than software engineers as of today i am i'm talking about us data us statistics but it would apply to other countries as well i'm sure so i think data scientists uh, they earn slightly more and data science is increasingly more in demand because data is the new oil isn't it there is so much data being generated every second today in the world data metadata all that and that is where the real sociology comes in because if you have this entire data set of every person you can actually crunch through it through al- using algorithms and you can actually uncover the entire psyche of the person the psychology of the person the, the behavioral patterns thought patterns everything if you have the right data and that is extraordinarily powerful in the hands of the right people or extraordinarily extraordinarily dangerous as well so i think that date, there's a great future for for data science and data analytics it can be really impactful and it is certainly going to be more and more in demand in the modern evolving world software engineering is also never going to go out of existence because software engineering is all about creating solutions and maintaining solutions and evolving solutions to various problems so there is a lot of overlap where these two fields merge come together uh, data scientists would obviously need to know some programming and all that software engineers obviously have to work with data when they are developing apps or all that so there's a lot of overlap so uh 
you could either go into pure data science or you could go into a bit of both but i think in the long run data science has a lot of demand and and a lot of scope for growth and progress as a career option okay vikrant says ambassador kajju once said that pakistan will always be allowed to stay afloat irrespective of any crisis economic or otherwise because no country wants a nuclear somalia what are your thoughts so i am not aware of this quote maybe he said that possible but it's an interesting quote it's an interesting idea it's an interesting thought so pakistan will always be allowed to stay afloat because nobody wants a nuclear somalia well i think this is the perspective of the west pakistan is far away from the west but they they don't want a nuclear state which is a rogue state with no governance which is essentially what somalia is but from the perspective of india a nuclear pakistan or the or a nuclear somalia is the same thing it is nuclear weapons in the wrong, in the hands of the wrong people so uh from india's perspective i am sure the us see the real thing is this the reason why pakistan was created and the reason why pakistan still exists it's it has still been allowed to it is still allowed to exist is to keep on it's to keep india on the back foot it's to counterbalance india is it's to keep bleeding india the americans financed pakistani terrorism in india from the 1980s onwards for the best part of two two and a half decades so they used pakistan as a means of of destabilizing and bleeding india right that is the real purpose of pakistan it's not about uh, not wanting a nuclear somalia and they the west doesn't want india to rise beyond a certain point and india is currently on a trajectory of rising much higher than they want india to rise so pakistan becomes indispensable in that position in 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 that scenario so they would not want pakistan to to be destroyed to disintegrate they would want pakistan to always remain there to counterbalance india right so that is the real reason why pakistan exists and the reason why it has been allowed to stay afloat not because they are concerned about a nuclear somalia and rogue nuclear weapons they are concerned about india's rise that's the real problem from india's perspective pakistan is a problem as long as pakistan exists on the western border we will always have problems and even if hypothetically some government had given kashmir away the problem would have not gone away it's not the the problem the issue is not kashmir pakistan seeks india as an existential threat that's what they claim but the real thing is that it's a tool in the hands of the west to keep to to, to keep on destabilizing destabilizing india if western interference was not there tomorrow india could buy out pakistan's nuclear weapons and buy out the pakistani generals they have a price they are mercenaries you give them enough money you meet their price and they will hand over their country to you and they will go and live in the west that's what they will do so the real reason why pakistan exists is that is because it is a valuable counterbalance to india in the eyes and the, in the hands of the west it's a western tool and recently it's become a chinese tool as well and they see it in the same light so that is the utility that pakistan has for the west and for china and that's why it has been allowed to keep on existing so it is for india to solve the problem nobody is going to solve india's problems except india itself so it is the current leadership and future leaders who will have to tackle this problem and to solve the problem once and for all 
it can be solved time will show us okay let's take a few live chat questions shall we let's take a few live live chat questions if you all have questions let me know now let's go okay do we have questions do we have questions shweta says what is this helium 3 found on, on the moon all about so helium 3 is an isotope it's, it's an isotope of helium helium is helium 2 the helium atom has two protons and two electrons going around that that's how it is it stays neutral helium 3 has two protons in the nucleus and an extra neutron so its atomic number is 3 and that is helium 3 it's a heavier isotope of the element helium and it is found in abundance on the moon on in the regolith which is the lunar soil the top soil of of the moon because of the constant bombardment of the solar radiation and cosmic rays that's what uh, has created this over this abundance of helium 3 atoms on the surface of the moon and helium 3 is believed is is an excellent nuclear fuel for next generation fusion reactors as of today we have not been able to um, to create controlled fusion on 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 the earth we have been we have been able to create fusion reactions which have been uncontrolled and that's what a thermonuclear explosion is it's a fission fusion reaction but if you can control fusion then that will give you an even better source of energy than a nuclear reactor which is uh, all about fission the fission reaction so so right now there are uh, projects going on which are which whose aim is to create a fusion reactor a sustainable controlled fusion reaction on on earth which has still not succeeded but maybe it will happen in the next 10 20 years so when fusion reactions become uh, fusion reactors become a reality that's when helium 3 comes in it's going to be an excellent fuel for these reactors and it is found in it is very rare on earth but it's found in great abundance in the lunar soil so that is what this is all about i think uh, dr apg abdul kalam has spoken about this that the the lunar helium 3 is an excellent is going to be an excellent fuel for future uh, fusion reactors so that's what it is all about okay how to understand physics start from the very basics start from understanding mathematics then start with the abc's of physics like school level and once you are good with that go to the higher level higher level higher level and in a few years you'll be able to understand physics well depending on your progress and your speed of uh, and the speed at which you uh, absorb new information and the amount of hard work that you put in it's a process okay what's your thought on western channels bashing india are they doing so because we abstain they are doing it because they don't want india to rise and they are uh, they are worried about india's rise on the global scenario they see the western channels belong to the western countries western europe and the us and this entire region 
the so-called Western civilization. It's actually the U.S. empire, right? And the U.S. doesn't want India to rise beyond a certain certain limit, because then India will become the next China if it is allowed to keep on rising. So that's why they have embarked upon this entire phase, this entire campaign, concerted, protracted campaign of demonizing and bashing India and lecturing India and bullying India and telling India to get in line. So it's all over the Western media. It's all over Twitter. It's all over social media. All these think tanks like Rand Corporation and whatever else. And even lots of Indian puppets in the in the Indian media, they are all doing the same thing. So it's not about India abstaining. It's about India pursuing an independent foreign policy. They don't want India to pursue an independent foreign policy. They want India to toe their line and do what they tell India to do, which essentially makes India an American vassal state, which is not going to happen. So India is not towing their line. India is pursuing an independent foreign policy. India is pursuing a strategy of multi-alignment, multilateralism. India wants a multipolar world. As long as India pursues this foreign policy, a multilateral world is going to, going to be there. And they don't want a multilateral world. They want a bilateral world, good and bad. They will say, we are good, China is bad. They only want two powers. As long as India is independent like this, there are more than two powers. So that's the whole thing. That's the whole game that is being played. And that's why they are bashing India. And that actually is a great compliment to our foreign policy. that They are so upset about it. Because we are looking out for our own national interest. Okay, what else do we have? Uh, Neil says, how to read books correctly, how to remember for a long time, how to use in real life. Uh, many people say that they have a problem, they don't remember things that they read in the books and all. So the thing is very simple. If you, are, if you don't find it interesting, you will not remember it. It's like this. Go and watch a movie which is very boring. Chances are after a week's time, you will remember nothing of it. I recently watched this movie, uh, Multiverse of Madness, last week. I remember next to nothing about it. It was so boring. There was no storyline. So if you watch a movie that you find boring, in your opinion, then you will remember nothing or, or almost nothing. And similarly, if you, if you read a book, if you force yourself to read a book that you find boring, you won't remember anything. But if you watch a really exciting, interesting movie, after three years, you'll remember the entire storyline. Similarly, if you read a book that's really interesting, you will remember it for a long time. So how to read books correctly? Before you even open a book, look at the title. What does the, the, does the title say? The title gives you a promise. The title tells you that this is what's inside the book. So before you open the book and start reading, make a list of five questions or 10 questions that you would like to have the book answer for you. And then look through the book and find the relevant portion where your question is answered. So if you have five questions that you hope the book will answer, if it can answer all five, great, read the whole book. And you may find it very interesting. But if you find that the book doesn't answer the questions that you have, or if it doesn't answer them satisfactorily, then maybe it's not the right book for you. So it's not about it being a good book or a bad book. It may not be the right book for you. So the best way to approach reading a book is to first have a set of questions or have a set of topics about which you want information, about which you seek information. And when you find the information, you will not forget it because you are looking for it. And, and, and that's not the only way to read a book. Obviously, the, some books will have information that you may find interesting even if you don't 
if even if you have not thought about it but to start off in your journey of reading books and retain information start with a list of questions before you even open a book that way you will be able to remember for a long time if the book can answer your questions and how to use it in real life well if you read a book of philosophy you may not be able to use it in real life if you read a book about tomato gardening you will, you will not be able to use it in in economics or so so if you read a book that has applications in real life and if you are able to remember it you'll be able to use it in real life that's how it will go sir okay the bricks were made by space enthusiasts who made bricks from mixture similar to soil on the moon uh this was kept in mind to make a base etc all right sir great thank you for letting me know okay what else what else can we find new elements in asteroid mining like vibranium vibranium i think is some fictional element right so, so we cannot find science fiction elements anywhere in the universe uh, we can only find the the elements that are in the periodic uh, table even elements that have not been discovered yet but the periodic table can predict elements that will will be discovered in the future so only those elements can be found anywhere in the universe now when it comes to asteroid mining that's not going to happen anytime soon it's not like we have asteroids everywhere it will take a great amount of resources to just to reach an asteroid because the asteroids are typically in the region between the orbits of mars and jupiter right that's very far away from here so just to reach an asteroid and that that entire region of space is mostly an empty space the average distance between two, any two asteroids is several millions of kilometers it's almost empty space so asteroid mining is could be a pipe dream it could be really prohibitively expensive but if you can find a big asteroid and you can actually mine it you may be able to uh, find great amounts of metals and useful things which may kind of crash earth's economy if you can bring it back to earth so that's what it is about okay do we see something else do we have any other interesting questions uh let me take one more question before i am done okay this is a question i must have answered 300 times but let's take it if aryan invasion theory is a myth why is bharat called aryavarth what is the origin of the word aryan the word arya is a sanskrit word which means civilized noble well behaved that's what it means it is not an ethnic term it means noble and civilized and cultured that's what arya means it is not an ethnic connotation the persians who left india several thousand years ago they started using the word arya as an ethnic term as an ethnic self designator and that's how it, this word came into eventually made its way to europe and they started calling the indians and iranians aryans and then the white supremacists stole it and they started using it to denote the white race so aryavrat means the land of the civilized and noble people it means all of all all indians are arya that's what it means so that is the origin of the word arya let me take one more question let me take one more question something interesting <laughs> why do we dream 
do we dream of dream of events events occurring in alternate realities we don't know why we dream that's a mystery nobody has been able to answer neither neurologists or psychiatrists or psychologists or anybody we still don't quite know why we dream we don't know the mechanism of dreaming we don't know the mechanism of, of consciousness whether it is something that emerges out of the brain comes from somewhere else we don't know we don't quite know some people would say that dreams are what you experience in a parallel universe there is a multiverse out there and there is a you in each universe and when you sleep you connect with the, with the you in that other universe in one of the other universes and you experience the reality they are living that's what some people say that is science fiction obviously or fantasy so that's uh, where that's all speculation we don't quite know why we dream nobody has been able to solve the mystery of dreaming of sleeping why do we sleep why do we need sleep you keep any animal or human being alive for a certain period of time they're going to fall into a coma they may even die so sleep is necessary we spent at least a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming so what are dreams what is it is it is it the brain reconfiguring data and information is it something else entirely happening we don't know that is an answer nobody has so i who am i to answer it i don't have the answer but it's an interesting question sometimes the questions are more interesting than the answers all right people thank you so much for another wonderful session wonderful questions and let's do it again soon maybe not next week next week i'll be traveling so we may not have a live stream but after that we will resume this so thank you so much and i'll see you soon thank you take care bye bye